0: Okay, so we uh, spent two weeks talking about the Thessalonian verses uh, that were just all eschatologically based, and uh, we went through it, different ideas that came forward. And it leaves us with the final verse of chapter 2. Paul says now, But we are bound to give thanks always to God uh, for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. And that wraps up the chapter and we go verse by verse. So let's go back and let's read that verse again because it is a good one. And we are bound, Paul says, to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. So we know who he's talking to there. He's talking to the saints there at Thessalonica. He's talking and he's thanking, giving, giving God thanks for them. Beloved brethren of the Lord. So he's talking to those believers, right? And um, what does he say? Why, is, why, did he, why does Paul give thanks to God for them? Because, he adds, and here's our line for today, God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and the belief of the truth. Thank you. That was the Holy Spirit. Just ran out the door. (laughs) We come to a line that ought to be addressed contextually because if we don't address it contextually... We may make the assumption uh, from the beginning that God elects all, uh, meaning only some, and uh, to salvation, and therefore. That was my time to lip sync. Uh, He elects all, meaning some, and uh, therefore He does not elect others, which is part of the unfortunate doctrine of Reformed theology. And uh, just really quickly, we're not going to spend too much time on Reformed theology, but their, their doctrine is God elects some to salvation, and He doesn't elect the rest to salvation, therefore, because God does the electing, the rest burn forever in eternal hell. That is Calvinistic Reformed theology. That's what it is, right? And you can't blame it to exist if you just read that passage and you think that that passage is just talking to everybody everywhere all the time. That God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation. You take that and you've got the doctrine, right? So when we read Scripture we always have to remember that the audience who's being to- to- spoken to, who it was originally written to, it's almost the same thing. We have to remember other points of content, like purpose for writing it, setting, who the author is, the subject surrounding the passage at hand. Hear this loud and clear, all right? A single passage does not a doctrine make. A single passage does not a doctrine make. And that was like Joseph Smith's big deal. He was able to pull these certain passages out and he built an entire superstructure of theology on them. So you can't do that. If you do, you're going to wind up with some really wonky uh, uh, theologies and beliefs. What's interesting is the way the human mind is wired, though is that we seek affirmation for our prejudices and our beliefs, and we, of course, once we establish those beliefs, we deny everything else outside of it. That's, that's the human way. Um, in other words, we see what we want to see as humans, and we find what we want to find. And so in this way, we kind of live our lives for instance, if a person honestly comes to believe that seagulls are invading the world, they just come up with this belief, they will begin to see seagulls everywhere. That's kind of how our minds work. And, uh, and, and simultaneously, we also block out other birds that you might see more of. Interestingly enough, so you could see crows, and you can see sparrows, and you can see pelicans, and you'll block all of those out. But every time you see a seagull, it will affirm your belief, and you will say, I got it. I know it. You know, I've seen it. I've had the experience, right? That's what our brains does. The brain does. Thomas Gilovich, in a fantastic book that helped open my eyes years and years ago, it's called How We Know What Isn't So. I've quoted it before. He says that... Um, we do that in, his, that in his studies, we do it to give us um, certainty and comfort and to get rid of conflicting factors that uh, make our life complex. And so if our brains were constantly having to reassess all the information from a, from a tabula rasa position, meaning a blank slate, uh, we couldn't handle it. So we build on what we've seen and learned and we establish our beliefs and our prejudices and our ideas and everything else like that. So there is perhaps no better evidence of this occurring than in religious circles. That if, that's why we have so many beliefs and, and so many contrary statements and doctrines and, and assertions that, that people say, I know this is true. I've, I've seen the signs. I've have the facts. I've read the scripture. And, and, and so a Calvinist, when they read that scripture, they'll say, again, Calvinism, Calvinism is proven true. I'm a five-point Calvinist. Knowing this about ourselves is really important as you try to assess situations and information as objectively as possible, uh, which is really difficult to do for us uh, perhaps it's even impossible without God and the Spirit moving you to see and me to see. So, And this is why looking to the Spirit and the Word together and the whole context of the Word to understand a subject is so vitally important when establishing what we would call spiritual truths. And with Scripture, we test our interpretations through the things I just mentioned. Context and author and time and all the other stuff, as well as against the rest of the Bible. The Bible has to be taken, uh, Genesis to Revelation, and the whole, the, everything it says about a subject has to be taken in for you to establish a belief on the subject itself. And hopefully it is established by the Spirit. So let me tell you a, a, a truism about Scripture. Scripture cannot contradict itself all right now that's the first thing i would say scripture cannot contradict itself so if you come to some passages of scripture that contradict themselves then it's either a contradiction because of tradition it's a contradiction because of translation they're there they are definitely there Uh, The translation has produced the contradiction. Uh, The manuscript source that you're considering and or your overall understanding of the context of Scripture itself. Something is lacking from probably those areas and more as to why you see a contradiction. Now, remember, in the Bible that we have today, you can have a contradiction. But from the original manuscripts, there would be no contradiction. There's no way. I don't believe that at all. So that's when, when people say the Bible is inerrant and that it's infallible. They are talking, folks, always scholars are talking about the original manuscripts, which we don't have. Okay? So when you find two sets of scripture that are in contradiction with each other, it's either because of translation, manuscript source, where it came from, uh, or your understanding of what the two passages are really saying. So if you find a passage uh, that says, Jesus is Lord, and you find a passage, which you won't, that says, Jesus is not Lord, um, you have to say, all right, why am I reading these two passages and, and going through that? As we've gone through them, we're creating this test, New Testament, I'm taking these passages that come up that have a, an apparent contradiction in them, and I'm setting them aside in a category, and I've got a list about this long right now, really interesting, how there are passages that have apparent contradictions, but a lot of it can be solved through context and a lot of it can be solved through Greek. When you go to the Greek, you find the words that are being used are different in the apparent English contradictions and it provides you with some understanding. You also can do homework and find the manuscript evidence is different, giving you evidence as to why there's a difference. So when people say the Bible's full of contradictions, that's really not true. Uh, and the original manuscripts, I would suggest, have no contradictions. And, you know, but that's an argument of, uh, for another time. So when you go and you take Scripture and you want a sound hermeneutic is what they call, a sound understanding of the Scripture, you go through these processes. All right. So here we're presented with a passage that clearly states, can't get around this, Something that's ref- that supports Reformed theology or Calvin, Calvinism and that God elects people to salvation. That is there. It's right there. And therefore the Calvinists assert that th- what they say is true, right? So let's read it again. Listen to what it says. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, beloved brethren of the Lord, because God has from the beginning, that's foundation of the world, from the beginning, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and the belief of truth. Is there any way to get around this statement and this passage and the clarity of it? I don't think so. No. No. Uh, Paul is really plain. I've checked the Greek. I looked at everything. They are giving thanks to those brethren in the Lord because God had chosen them from the beginning to salvation. That's what it says. So you have to say the scripture does teach election. Got to say that, right? In the face of that, we have to move forward. Does the passage prove, for instance, five-point Calvinism? And its definition of election. Does it say that God rejects the rest? Does it ever say that? Does it say, and and, and who is the audience here? And was the passage written to all believers everywhere? And what was the Greek? (laughs) This is the interruption show. So, see, because of setting, audience, authorship and other passages that contradict this one, and a host of other factors, we know that while the passage itself holds water, we know that the interpretation and application of the passage by Reformed theologians is errant. All right. Nevertheless, the passage does support election of some sort. And so our job, my job, I believe, is to help... um, you understand the context of Scripture and to see what does Scripture say relative to election and uh, all those other factors. So it's really important to you seekers out there and those who are here in the church studio, it's so important, I'm going to move my bionic hips, I'm going to get up off my, uh, my lazy hips that have been replaced, and I'm going to go to the board, Because I want to teach you what I think is a uh, sound uh, approach to Scripture relative to the doctrine of election. All right? So, let's see here. And I'm not going to be up here very long. The first relationship to election in Scripture is what I call to them before. So, when you're reading Scripture, who is them before? It is... The nation of Israel. Were they elected? When you read of election in Scripture, the first way to see election of God is to them before. The second way is to see it relative to them then. Who were they then or them then? The bride of Christ. In my estimation, that's how I see it eschatologically. Or you could say the early church. Them then. Is election present in scripture relative to them then? It certainly is. All right. And the third way is to us now. That means to me, everybody in our modern age and going back, you know, I think a couple thousand years now is election in scripture to us now. Absolutely. It's there. And then there's a fourth category relative to election to those later. People really don't like this one. Does scripture talk about election of those later? So when you look at it, the the reform position is God elects to salvation, period, done, it's just one thing and that's it. But scripture shows that election talks about four categories and how God works through those. The nation of Israel, the bride... uh, The first, you can call that the the, them then, the bride, or the first fruits, the first fruits if you want, of many brethren. And um, you can go on to the third one, us now. And that means believers now who have come to know Christ and God through Christ by faith. And then um, relative to those later, meaning those who are drawn to Him who every mouth will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus is the Christ in their existences. You can see election scriptures for every one of those categories. So does God elect for sure? Who? Again, look at the board. I suggest that scripture speaks of his elections of those categories. And so I want to address them. Let me talk quickly about them before. Um, We know from Romans 9, and I'm not going to read it, And many other places that God elected, chose uh, the nation of Israel to be his chosen nation out of all the other peoples of the world. They were the only ones at that time. Right. And there's no doubt about that relative. That bothers people. A lot of people don't understand that. It makes really mad. Why did God choose the Jews? I mean, why them? Why not me? Why not us? I mean, why not other nations? Why did he elect them? They were so great. They have this idea, right? He elected the nation to do some things. Paul tells us this. What did they do? They brought forth the law. uh, The law of Moses. They brought forth the Ten Commandments. They brought forth the Scripture, they, had, they, had, they brought forth prophets, and those prophets provided the Old Testament for us, right? And then through its genealogical lines of the nation of Israel only, they brought forth the Messiah. All of those things. There are a few realities about re- election I want you to understand that I can see from Scripture. And it started with the nation of Israel, and when God elected them, the realities were there. And the realities are there for every one of those groups that God elects, every one of them. The first reality is that God elects whom he's going to elect of his own goodwill and purpose, and he is not a respecter of persons, meaning he does not elect some or others because of them. He didn't love the nation of Israel because they were better than others. He doesn't elect believers now because they're better. On down the line, it's not because of the the one being elected, it's because it's God who is doing it. And scripture points this out repeatedly for his own purposes. For his own purposes. He elected the nation of Israel. Out of Abraham comes Isaac, Jacob. We have the 12 tribes. We have the certain people type. And of his own purposes, God says, I'm going to use this people type. And use is a good word for being elected because God uses you. It is not a matter of uh, supremacy. It's a matter of God wants to use you, right? So there's nothing in you or the nation or the people or them, then, us, now that is better than others. God cannot respect people. It's impossible for him to do it. He's not a respecter of persons. That's hard for us to imagine. We automatically think that if you uh, Billy Graham was somehow superior. To somebody else. No, 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 no. That's why God elected him. No, 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 no. Not that at all. And so start that. The second thing about it is that when God elects any of those four categories, when he elects it, he chooses, elects. You can use either word. They mean the same thing. John the Baptist, (coughs) uh, the nation of Israel, whoever, Noah. It's all to bring something about that's first... For, for good later. It's always an election that does something better for, no, for another group coming down the pike. It isn't for the betterment. We think of election by God as being, you're chosen to sit on a throne. No, it's not that. In fact, that brings us to the third part about, uh, part about election is that if God elects you as a nation or as a person or whatever, uh, it means you are elected to suffer. Get that straight in your scriptural mind. It is to suffer. Okay? Now, in our day and age, when we say suffer, we think of you know boils and and, and poverty and all that stuff. And in our day and age, I suggest that the suffering is usually different. But to the material age, the nation of Israel, and to the early church, it was physical suffering as well as spiritual. It was suffering in all kinds of ways. But nevertheless, suffering. Uh, is uh, synonymous with election. Election being chosen by God is synonymous with suffering. So you got to remember those three factors when it comes to God electing someone to do something. And it's it's usually those three factors prove that we have it wrong in our minds of what it means to be chosen by God. Okay, so what what are the people chosen suffering for? It leads to the, the second principle I just share with you. They're suffering for a group to come later. They're suffering in their own lives for the group to come later. All right. We generally think, again, that it's something big, but in reality, it's something big for the person. But you, all you got to do is just look at the lives of those who have been chosen in the Bible. That's our, that's our litmus test for, for being elected. And John the Baptist, you know, He comes, what's he doing? He's elected to do what? To do something great for who? The Jews after and Jesus who is gonna come after him. And what happens to him? He gets his head cut off and put in prison. Jesus, called, chosen, elected, all that you wanna say or if you don't wanna say it about him, fine. You can, I think you can. His was pure suffering for who the world? The apostles, suffering, elected, called out, chosen, suffered, right? Were the apostles a call because of their own greatness. Look at Peter, a fisherman, who is constantly getting in trouble with the Lord, not of his own. So remember that stuff when you read passages about election in Scripture. And then remember though that the election, you have to really kind of decipher and parse the verse out to see, are we talking about election of just a small group of people or is it one of these areas? All right, so... I'm of the opinion that the last group those later that it talks about even they will suffer how I think that in this life they haven't come to faith I think that the the open the gates to the kingdom are open 24/7 day and night as it says in revelation and I think that they are of the dark and I think they ha- to come into the light is an insufferable uh, position after this life I don't mean terror I mean I don't think it's incomprehensible but I think that there is always when God calls and elects it's going to include some discomfort on the person or persons called so let's uh move forward them before the nation of Israel elected by God chosen to do what they did and they suffered all the way through for doing it go to the next group them then that is the New Testament period, them then, who these letters are written to. When we read those letters, most often Paul and Peter and everybody are writing to them then. And if you, if you mistake that and you think that Paul in his letter says, hey, and this is to the believers at Thessalonica and to Sean McCraney in 2020, if you think you can do that in the scripture, you're wrong. You can't do that. There's no passage that says you can do that. We trust that the Bible, the living word, has application in our life. I absolutely trust that. That's why we teach it. But you can't say that each single line was written to you because when you do that, you miss so much. That's another thing that we have in this compilation in the New Testament. I have a box of scriptures that could not possibly be saying it to anybody today. And yet we say, no, every word is to us. There's not a passage that says that, folks, but there's a dozen passages that say this is just to them. In fact, in our afternoon milk uh, meat session, we're reading 1 Timothy. What was that, a letter to? That was Paul writing to who? Timothy. Where? Over the church of Ephesus. Is it written to us today? Never did Paul seem to believe that his words were gonna be used later. never. Do they have application, sure, by the Spirit? So I'm just saying, the people living in Jesus' age and his apostles, and they were primarily Jews who came out of Judaism. Yes, there were Gentiles too, because the Old Testament says the Gentiles will benefit from this gospel. So we know that the Gentiles had to come in. And they came out under the law, from under the law, and they were persecuted like mad for doing this. Right? And so the Messiah had come to them then. He said, I have come to my own. And, 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 uh, and then he chooses 12 apostles and, and they go out and they're trying to get those Jews to believe on him before the day of the Lord. Believe on him before it comes. And they all suffer. Those who believed on him, and endured to the end in their faith, were saved from the coming destruction, and they were saved to the kingdom of God in a very, very important way. They would be the first to inhabit as the bride of Christ that the gates of hell did not prevail against. They would be the first to inhabit the new Jerusalem and above, and they would inaugurate the wrapping up of the former age of all that stuff, And they would introduce the new age where God writes on the minds and hearts of those who were His and where all these things will happen uh, uh, and get away all that stuff from the former age. So God most assuredly had from the foundation of the world elected those believers then. He elected them, as Paul says here in this verse, from the beginning, the foundation of the world. He elected them to be Part of the bride of Christ, who he was coming to take to be the one who would then the bride of Christ and Christ have children, the offspring, the more fruit, more brethren. That's us today. So if you see it that way, you'll start to understand passages that talk about election. And uh, they were collectively, as Ephesians says, without spot, without wrinkle, unblemished, holy. And the directives from the apostles and Jesus to that bride were emphatically material and spiritual. I mean, they had, they could, there's no messing around with sin here. You know, we got Christians all over the world today and they mess around with sin. I'm saved by grace and all this stuff. That was not going on, folks. The New Testament narrative that bride had to be pure, without spot, holy, unblameable, unblemished. You read that today. And show me the church that's that way. It's not there. They get rid of you. Uh, So um, they were the first to inhabit, and he elected them. There was 144,000 of them, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, not from us, every tribe of Israel who didn't defile themselves with women, it says in Revelation. They were beyond reproach as the bride that he was coming to take, all right, So gathered in the seven uh, actual churches uh, in in Asia Minor, Jesus addresses them. And he says, look at if you don't shape up here, you're gone. And and before we studied Revelation for two and a half years, I said, I am terrified by this book because the Jesus I understand in Revelation, who's talking to the seven churches, is a very different Jesus than you read about in the Gospels and in the Epistles. That Jesus that you read about in Revelation, he's like, I'm not messing around. I like this about you, I like this about you, but I don't like this and I don't like that and you better shape up because it says I'm coming quickly to take my bride and if you don't shape up, you're not gonna be part of it. So they suffered and they suffered in their flesh, they suffered in their spirit, they suffered with absolute Uh, warfare upon their lives they were starving to death they were being put to death by the romans they suffered like no other and you can't i really can't even emphasize it enough yes we see people get beheaded for the faith in north korea or or afghanistan or kazakhstan or some place and we're like this christian's suffering again nothing compared to what they were under Right, And they were dying, left and right. Under the altar in Revelation, the saints are crying, when, God, when are you going to revenge us? And you know what God says? When your other brethren come and join you, that's when I'll revenge you. When the rest who are on earth come and join you, who are killed, God was letting them die, right? So what was the purpose of them Remember, you always have a purpose when you're elected by God. As the bride of Christ, they along with her husband bring forth more of God into his kingdom established on high. And who are the more? All, you and me, because of what they did, fulfilling prophecy, Christ taking his elect because of what they did in establishing it, um, all are now invited to come by faith. And all who receive the invitation to love God and to love others more than their own lives are part of that, who say Christ is Lord and who die to self. They are the next group of elect. There are therefore passages of scripture that speak to the election of us now. And you have to parse them. You have to decide, is this passage talking to them before, them then, to us now, to all of it? And some, some passages cover all of it, or is it talking about those later? And um, those who have joined the heavenly kingdom by grace through faith, does God call all now? I think he calls all. Do all receive? Absolutely not. Does God know who his elect are in the world? Of course he does. God knows everything. He's not surprised. He knew. And But his knowing, this is important, doesn't determine our reception. And this is hard for people to get. If he knew that you would receive him by faith, then the reformed mind says he created you to be the type that would receive him. And therefore he is a sovereign God electing some and disposing the rest. I completely renounce that. I preach a two-way street because Scripture supports it. And, and we can readily see that Um, if we take all the mitigating passages that offset election uh, uh, into account, you can see there is a two-way street going on. If you focus just on the ones that justify your pet belief, you'll see what you want to see. But if you open yourself up and say, let me understand the word uh, completely, you'll see passages that support election. You'll be able to see pretty much which one they assign to And you're also to see passages that support your response and your ability to choose. See, I believe God created us all with an ability to choose. And He knew who would choose, but they are choosing. So His foreknowledge does not mean they have to. You get it? There are either even people in Scripture, supported by Scripture, who choose and later fall away from extenuating circumstances. So God even allows that. So the idea of a sovereign election that comes from Calvinism, I would uh, continue to reject based on scripture alone. So yes, he knows who will choose and receive his call. And in that sense, those who are his are are the elect. They are the ones who uh, are chosen because of their faith. But I don't see this in a predestinational sense. I simply see it as He knew who would choose, elect to choose him through faith and who would not. And for those who would not, he knows what he's doing with them too. So people say he created us, therefore he's the founder of our choices and we uh, therefore cannot resist those choices. I reject that completely based off scripture. So, and what does our election mean? Because I said, you know, election always includes the fact that you're not special it's God's purposes that he elects you and two that it's going to include a benefit for someone in the future and also that it will include suffering so to whom does our election if you're a believer benefit and uh the same realities for everyone that has been elected before the same realities uh There's somebody or some group or people or world in the future that benefits or presently from your believing. Uh, And I'm going to tell you a couple of those. Scripture says that believers are salt and light. That's how it describes you. You know what those are, don't you? They're preservatives. Both salt and light remove mold and corruption. So believers are preserving the world from corruption. You are its preservative. You're keeping the carnality of this world, the meat. They used to pack meat and salt to keep it from going bad. And you are salt and light. Light burns away it. That's what we are in this world. So to believe now and follow Christ is benefiting people and they don't even know it. That the right to march and the right to do all these things is possible, in my estimation, because of Christ and those who believe on him. So it's a very important role that we, you play as a believer. Um, I, I, I think that uh, corruption weakens the earth, and then without a believer on the face of this earth, this world will go absolutely black, totally corrupt, totally ugly, totally polluted. No light at all, okay? So uh, we serve to bring others to the faith, which then increases the preservation of the salt and the light the spiritual light that we're talking about and uh, gives more hope in the world. And then finally, we're increasing the power of God in the darkness that when a human being with free will chooses to say, I trust in a living God and I place my faith on him, he is empowered. That's the, that's the magnificent thing about that. You bring his power by you choosing to be a believer. Versus anybody can reject him, but you are actually contributing to the betterment of the world and the body and, and God himself by choosing to love him and serve him and others ahead of your own person. Is there suffering in that? Of course there is. You know, you tell me to love God uh, as God wants you to and to love others as God wants you to or to love self, is there suffering involved in that? So where the nation of Israel was experiencing joy and blessing based on their decisions, and the early church was pure suffering, I mean, they were saying, Jesus, you're our Messiah, and they're still killing him. Ultimate suffering. You and me, we suffer spiritually and to our flesh. We die to our will, and it's painful. And no one wants to do that. So again, we go through the auspices of being without wrinkle, without spot, being holy as the early bride was, but it's individual and it's God working with you and you deciding. I have a friend who uh, sent me a text yesterday, two days ago, and I know him pretty well. He's a pretty carnal human being. He loves the Lord, but his flesh really rains and he's had some issues with, with women and alcohol and stuff. And he just told me, he's, he's a little bit older, and he told me that a woman is sending nude pictures of herself to him. And then he sent me the email, uh, the text he sent to the girl. And, uh, and I have never gotten on his case in all the years I've known him. I've, you know, I've never said, you got to stop this and you got to do that and just let him be who he is. And he sent an email to me and he said, you know, you know thank you for the uh, pictures. <laughs> However, I've chosen a different course in my life. And, you know, these are very, uh, you know, inviting to me, but I am pursuing a spiritual walk and I'm walking, you know, with the Lord now. And, and I wrote him back. I said, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen from you of your own choice. You made the decision to do that. He doesn't attend a church. He doesn't do any of that. He believes he reads the word and stuff. But he doesn't attend, but he is chosen by the spirit to love God and others more than himself. And that's the suffering that we, we go to. So, uh, more insufferable, in my opinion, than being put to death. I can handle physical pain. I really can, in some some respect, unless it's a cold. But uh, uh, physical pain, you know, that's okay. But man, when it comes to the spiritual dying to self... That is insufferable. So we have God electing the nation of Israel and all of her prophets. We have him electing John the Baptist to bring forth Messiah, who is also elected. We have the apostles who Jesus elected. God gave them to him. We have the bride of Christ who was elected to suffer and to be holy and without spot. And then we have the offspring of Christ and her bride along with as long as this earth stands. Right. Finally, we have the last category, those later. Now, most Christians discount that. No, there's no those later. Now, they say, uh, you live today, tomorrow's the judgment, right? Today you're alive, tomorrow the judgment. That may be true. I mean, that's scripture. But does God say that's it? He doesn't. He just says you'll be judged, all right? So those later, those whom God knew would not receive him, those who he knew would not receive him, why even have such a category, right? You know, because part of our whole credo is, you know, you got to believe now. Why? Well, there's benefits to it. You have a relationship with God now. You are doing something good for future generations by preserving the earth with salt and light. You're, you're a child of God. You're growing. All of those benefits, why you receive now. Those who reject Him now and, and leave this earth without knowing Him, they suffer greatly in a lack of knowledge and, and the joy that we have in, in a relationship. So when a Christian tells me, well, what's the big, why would I receive him now and suffer through all this? You're going to suffer one way or another. You might as well do it here in the flesh by your own will, being offered up on the altar and choosing to follow God rather than dying and seeing what it looks like and then kind of, you know, your knee bow and your tongue confesses because it's so miserable. I don't, I don't know the reason totally, but I mean, it's better to choose now and have him because it's better life. It's living. It's having him with you, right? So in Reformed theology, they discount that. And why even have this category? Scripture says, and I think we read it here, God will not have any perish, but all will come to repentance. When it says will not, will not, that's God's imperative will. That is not His passive will, His hopes and wishes. It's His, He will not have any perish, but all will come to repentance. All right, and when you read that, you have to say, well, when's that happening, right? In Reformed theology, as you know, God elects some and not others, and therefore Christ, he only suffered for the sins of some. See, they have a systematic theology. And and since only some are elected, then God would not have his son die on the cross for all. He only died, it's a limited atonement. He only died for the few, And that is in complete contradiction to what Scripture says. Absolute contradiction to what Scripture says. They have to rethink Scripture in order to make it work. Calvin had to assert this, though, and it makes sense, because he knew that if Christ paid for the sins of the world, then the sin of the world was wiped away. He knew that. And so he had to say, no, he didn't pay for the sin of the world because by paying for a limited number of people who are elected, then it shows that the sin was not paid for the rest and they suffer eternally. So that's why he's built this into his, uh, his theology. And, but with Christ paying for the sins of the world, I have some unfortunate news for some of you who uh, don't believe this. The world has been reconciled to God through Christ and their sin has been taken care of. If you're watching me now, if you're in our audience now, Your sin is paid for by Christ. You will die and not have an angry God at you for your sin. He will reward you for your love. He will reward you for your faith, for the life you lived. But he is not going to punish you for the sin. His son paid for the sin of the world. And I can give you a dozen or more scriptures to prove it. In the Greek, paid for the sins of the world. Calvin was smart enough to know, he was a genius, that if he paid for the sins of the world, then the world has been saved. And that was not going to work in his mind. So as a means to offset this, he and those who follow his teachings assert that election is only to some and therefore atonement is only to some and therefore the fact that all will come to repentance is rejected by them. It's rejected. Or they throw the caveat, they'll be forced to repent. The weight will come down on them, and I'm repentant. I I don't buy that at all. I don't think God is a God of force. So um, most in their uh, thinking will go to an eternal punishment of hell forever, burning forever, Uh, and that's because God wills it. So in the presence of all Scripture, including the fact that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and that all will come to repentance and none will perish, that word's apulamahi, and it means wiped out, none, Uh, we cannot ignore the fact that there's a plan for those later in place in the good news. Is it even close to the plan God has for his body today who believe on him? I don't think so. Not even close. Is it close to the plan God had for the bride? Not even close. But there's a plan. And that's the good news. So when I talk to somebody who wants to know what Christianity believes, it's, Jesus Christ came, lived, died, resurrected, and he died for your sin, your sin. I'm not a believer though. He died for you anyway. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And he did that for you. And that opens their heart up to the fact of what God has done for them, right? And his goodness causes them to change and repent. But if I was to meet somebody and say, what's your faith about? And it's "Well, it's about Jesus coming and dying for the sins of those who believe on him. And you better believe on him or God is going to cast you into hell. And then once you believe on him, you better do what he says or he's going to punish you. That's a very different good news to me. And scripture, that's the most important thing. I don't care what I believe. Scripture does not support this. And I know we can argue, well, they say it does and they say it doesn't. It does not contextually support this. God, through Christ, has had the victory over sin and death by and through. His calling and electing the nation of Israel first then his son and all those with him then the apostles the bride of christ sons and daughters thereafter and ultimately all who he will ha- all will come to repentance because of that and according to his purposes that's always the caveat in scripture according to his purposes and you have to say what are god's purposes in the first place And you come back to, well, he created and his purpose was to elect some and destroy the rest in an eternal living actual hell. Or his purposes where they're going to mess up greatly. This plan's going to get messed up, but I'm going to fix it. I take the latter approach. His purposes are good. His purposes are victorious. His purposes are right. And Jesus has had that victory. And I refuse to accept any other version of that. So, I want to. Uh, we all play a part, and we hope to play our part well, is what I would say. So I want to do something fun as we wrap this up. It's fun for me, at least. And <laughs> you guys might be in misery. If you're at home and you're taking notes, you might want to take these down and check, check my assertions. I could be wrong on some. But I want to work through some passages that talk about election. I just want to categorize them. Passages according to those four places. Now, I could be wrong, they could apply to more or less than what I say, but I want to categorize the election passages and see if you agree with me. Now, just to let you know, Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 are very big on election. You have to do your own homework and read those uh, chapters yourself. I'm not going to read all those chapters because there's a preponderance of evidence about election in those. But I will refer to a few of those passages in them and talk about them. So let's just work through it. John, Jesus says in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whenever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Okay, we read that as supporting. Yep, he didn't. How many times have you heard Christians say, you didn't choose me, I chose you, right? He didn't, you know, and and Calvinists cite that. Bottom line, he's talking to his apostles, guys. That's who he's talking to. And so it was to them then, specifically to his apostles. Ephesians 1, 4, 5. And as I said, Ephesians is big, but I just want to read this one. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. You read those passages in 1 Ephesians, you think you have a lockdown on predestination and God's election. But I'm going to tell you something, Paul is speaking there to Jews. Because he, he talks about us and we, and then he talks about you and them later. He, that chapter is divided up and Paul talking about us, meaning Jews, and then Gentiles later. And the Gentiles, he does not speak of predestination to. He speaks of predestination and foreordination, not foreordination, predestination from the foundation of the world to Jews who come to know Christ from the foundation of the world. Is that a reality? It certainly is. God elected them from the foundation. And that's what it's speaking to there. Test that one if you want, and you'll see. Romans 8, 28 through 30, a few from that. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There you go again. Remember, it's always for his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Ready? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Many brothers right and those whom he predestined he called to those whom he also justified to those he justified he also glorified. I think it's to them then. I think it's to us now. I think in the end it was probably also the nation of Israel. I'm not sure it would apply to uh, those later, but I certainly believe it bl- uh, belongs to the first three categories. Second Thessalonians 2:13 that's what we're reading now to them then the first fruits. note that there are first fruits ready oh no we haven't read that it says but we always give yeah yeah. He says, chose you as the first fruits to be saved. So there are first fruits that when, when you talk about first fruits, it's the, the, the best of the crop, but there's always more. Always, right? So if we're the first fruits among many brethren, there's always going to be more. And so I would say to them then, and then perhaps us, Acts 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. To them then, the Gentiles it's talking about there in Acts 13, as many of the Gentiles who were appointed to eternal life believed. They were appointed to be part of the bride. They believed. Were they elected? They were. Were the others not? They don't seem to be. But it was to them then, definitely. You can't take that and and, and assign it to yourself because it wasn't even written to us or describing us. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Does that describe election? It does. Does it say that it was based on his grace and purposes alone? It does. Does it say it was before the ages, before the beginning, before the foundation of the world? It does. Who was he talking to? Them then, meaning the bride. They were called and elected specifically to do and be what they were, which meant the most intense sorrow, well above what the Jews uh, have ever experienced before or after uh, in their history. Revelation 13, 8, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That is clearly, because of eschatology, describing them then. The bride who would not take the name of the beast, who would not be part of all that fallen uh, uh, world and Babylon and, and, and all of that. They refused. All, uh, they wouldn't worship that stuff. They were um, the ones that that scripture is speaking to because their names were written. So we take that today and we think it's everybody on earth has had, who is his, who's been elected, has been written, and nobody whose name is, if your name is not in that, you weren't elected. I don't believe that's right contextually. I think what it's saying is speaking to that group then. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We apply that to ourselves today. Bottom line, he's talking to the first fruit bride there. I mean, that's what he says. In fact, he's talking at a time when there's not even Gentiles who are receiving the gospel. And, and here's another reason, and this gets a little heavy, but I'll just explain it to you quickly, why I believe that he's talking about them, then, and not us. I don't believe the Father is giving the Son those uh, people who will believe on him anymore. I believe there's a Lord God Almighty sitting on the one throne, and that is God. And I believe the Lord God Almighty is one God, and it's the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, it's God. And the Father is no longer in the act of giving anymore because victory has been had. That's my assessment. You can differ with it. But I, I don't see the Father giving Jesus anymore, those who will come to him. I think he was specifically talking about the bride then and who was going to be his uh, in that kingdom. Romans 9, 16 So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. To them then, to us now, to those later, it was not to the nation of Israel. That was not to the first group. It was to the last three. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. And again, I think he's talking about them then. Because he says at the last day, and I think he's talking about the time when he'll come back to take his bride. Could he be talking about us now in the resurrection? Sure. It's possible. You could assign it to ourselves, but that's it. Mark 13, 20. Listen to this one. If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days can't apply that to yourself. <laughs> Unless you want to apply it to yourself personally and your own death. But he's talking about, hey, God had to shorten the time of all the tribulation going on. Or he says, for this, there would be none, there'd be none left. So for the elect's sake, he shortened the days. You know what that also tells us? The elect can be lost. The elect can be lost due to circumstance. Because God had to actually shorten the days of tribulation then, because if He didn't, for the elect's sake, none would be saved. So we know it was a specific group of people. 1 Peter 1 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of His blood, may grace and peace be applied to uh, you. And I think that's to all everywhere, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, all four categories. He's had it in hand. He's not a failure. He's not a failure God. He allows us our free will, but he triumphs in the end through his son, the spirit and long suffering. Romans eight twenty nine, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If we stop right there, you can say, look at another thing on predestination, another thing on election, and you could be a Calvinist. Um, and it's to them then. But he adds, in order, in order. So for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn, there's always more, right? Which includes us now. In Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, you read a passage that many people cite. Many are called, few are chosen. Few are chosen. And people explain that to be, everyone is being called, many are called, but few are elected by God to be his. And actually, you are really ignoring the context of that passage if you understand it that way. This is a line that comes at the end of a long parable of a king who's having a wedding for his son. And he invites the whole community to attend. The Jews is what they represent. And they refuse the invitation. I'm busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm busy with life is what their rejection was. And this makes the king angry. And so he sends his uh, uh, men out, servants out into the highways and byways to shake the bushes and get anybody. This is the reaching out of the gospel to the Gentiles. Come to the bride, the wedding party of my son. This is picturing him taking his bride. Come and join and be part of it. Okay. This is the setting. And so everyone comes, shows up, they have the invitation, they're invited, and they they come in. And he comes and then the king comes in, and he sees, I think it's a king, he sees one guy not dressed appropriately. He's wearing his own clothes. And this angers the king. And he goes up to him and says, "Why aren't you in your wedding attire?" See, in those days you would attend a, a wedding, it would be like us renting a tux or something. You don't wear your street clothes. And this one guy who was invited came to the wedding and then was found to have not changed his apparel. And it's a picture in type for first the Jews rejecting, then the Gentiles all being inviting, and those who are invited come in, and some of them are found to have not changed their ways, changed their clothes. And so the king, you should hear the description that Jesus has, the, has the guy taken out, bound, and I think burned, which is a picture for the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Join us now, come into the party and change your life and you'll be part of my bride. That's how you would understand that. And he ends the whole thing with many are called, few are elected. Meaning many have been invited in, but few will actually be my sons and daughters, part of the bride. And that's the way to see that passage. So don't let people use that on you as a as a uh, recitation for... Um, God's election of some and not others. Uh, I'm not going to read that one. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man will boast. We know that. We get that. All of this is talking about God's grace coming through faith, and it has nothing to do with election in my estimation. Uh Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any would perish but that all should reach repentance. That's to those later. It could have been to them then hoping that all who were being called wouldn't perish in the coming destruction but it's also to those later because God does not he's not wanting or wishing or will not have actually is a better way to read that he will not have any perish, but all will come to repentance. That fits that last category really well. Think about that one. First Peter 1:20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. In these last times, he says, for the sake of you." All right? That was to them then. Ephesians 1:15, He predestined us, the Jews for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. All you got to do when you want to look at the way God does things is say, why did he choose the nation of Israel? Why were they so special? And then they rejected their son and they get wiped out. And then he has a bride. And why were they so special to be with Jesus and being led by the apostles and being uh, taken as the bride? Well, there are more to come later. And then why are you so special who are being called today? Why? What's what's so good about you, Christian, that you're the salt and light of the earth? Well, then he'll reach to those later. That's how God works. You can see it, right? We want to do, he'll work there. He stopped working here or he stopped working there. No, he's going to stop there. That's not what scripture says. Romans eight thirty three. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies every one of those categories. Every one of them. And what that says is we don't bring a charge against other believers at God's elect. You don't bring charges against them. God is the one who justifies them. Leave them alone. If they're his, they're his, right? So I think it applies to all four categories. And the intercessory prayer in John 17:9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus is on the earth. It's the intercessory prayer with his apostles. And he's saying, Father, you're going to give me some. You're going to give me some people who are mine. You're going to draw them to me. And I, I'm grateful for them. That's who I pray for. It was to them then. You know, is it still to us today? Perhaps still. Yeah. Yeah. Those are debatable. John 6, 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. Again, a reference to eschatology and him lifting that church up, that bride up on that last day. Also could I reference, if you're a futurist, to the church being lifted up in this last day. And if you're how I think, individuals being resurrected on our last days. Um, Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of faith of God's elect, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, with a, which accords with godliness. Paul writes in, in Titus 1.1, I've been called as an apostle for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which, which accords with godliness. That's to them then. Paul was called as an apostle to them, to do that with them. You can assign it to yourself, sure, but it was written to them. Romans eleven two. God does not reject his people whom he foreknew. Did you not know what scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to the God of Israel? I think I was talking about before then, then, then before, talking about the nation of Israel. He foreknew them and he does not reject them. Luke eighteen seven. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? This is written in the gospel and it references what I told you about the believers in the, in the heavens that John sees under the altar crying out for justice and vengeance. How long, O Lord? How long? And here Luke, uh, he writes that God will give justice to the elect who cry to him day and night. They're under that altar crying out for justice. And again, what's the answer they get when they say, when will you give us justice for the way we were treated? And uh, he says, when your other brothers join you in death. It's really interesting too, this is a side note to that. John has seen a vision of heaven. In heaven are the saints underneath the altar. And what are they crying for? God's vengeance upon those who treated them badly. Isn't it interesting that that's a heavenly vision and in heaven he sees people We think of dying and going to heaven and everyone being like, oh, it's just pure love and everything. No, John sees these people who had been martyred and they want justice. So that was present in that picture of heaven there. They were crying out, God, when will you? And perhaps that's the case. You know, because we speak often, I speak often of God's love and his mercy and his long suffering and his patience. But God is just. And I think that if you are in God's presence, you will be just and you will want justice. And so those saints, they wanted it. They cried for it. So there's nothing wrong with justice at all, as long as it is measured you know, properly and it's not vengeance. And, and that's just a fascinating passage to me. Mark 13:27. he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth uh, to the and the, From the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, then, then eschatologically. Romans 9, I'm not going to read that one because I said uh, I'm not going to cover those. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Quite literally, then then. Quite literally, that bride who would inhabit the new Jerusalem, as a royal priesthood, we can take it and assign it to ourselves as joining that. Even then, I'm not sure it's applicable. But it was certainly talking about them. He was writing to them and telling them, you're a royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And and if you take everything in harmony with that, it's really tough to read that and say, that's talking about all believers still today. It It could have application, but I'm not sure on that one, you have to think. Colossians 3.12, put on them as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts to them then, perhaps us now who are truly sons and daughters, who have compassionate hearts and who are made holy by his blood and who live this life, you know. Acts 9.15, the Lord send him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is Gamaliela, or Gamaliel, or however you say his name, I can never say it. And uh, he says, I don't want anything to do with this Paul. This Paul guy, I want nothing to do with. And God says in the vision, go, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. So what's Paul's chosen election doing? To the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So again, we see in his election, he was chosen to do something for others. And in his election, he was chosen to suffer. And he certainly did. 1 John 2, 2. He is a propitiation for our sins. This is Jesus. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't know how Calvinism uh, can stand on a limited atonement, but he is, First uh, John 2, 2, his propitiation is for the sins of the whole world. Done. Forget it. If he paid for the sins of, of unbelievers too, the sin's gone, folks. It's gone. Their lives and their free choices and the evil they do, that's not gone in terms of ramifications for their, who they are as souls and what their future is. But the sin is gone. First Thessalonians 1.4 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you to them then. That's, uh, and frankly, all before and after. He's chosen everybody according to his own purposes and then John 6:65. 6, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And again, I believe that that is done away with. And I think that all things have been put in Christ's hands completely. And there's no more granting of the Father to the Son. No more right hand uh, intercession and all that, I think, is fulfilled as Revelation describes. And uh, Galatians 1:5. But when he had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. And that's Paul speaking of himself, talking about his election. In Romans 11:5, Paul points out that during the time of Baal, God selected 7,000 men to remain faithful. Uh, and then he adds there, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There's always a remnant. There's always those who are coming next who are chosen by grace. I know I've given you a lot. I'm not going to give you, uh, (laughs) I guess I got a little bit, I guess I got a little bit zealous here. Um, I'm just going to read you some mitigating passages to wrap it up. Isaiah 55.1, when we talk about election, we talk about God pointing for his own purposes. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine without money, with, and milk without money and without price. The invitation for you in the two-lane highway to come. He elects, he draws, he calls. But there is always that two-way. And that's, these are the mitigating passages I have to read. Uh, Revelation 3.10, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... So he's elected certain groups, he's elected certain people, he's elected for his own purposes, but that does not mean all don't have the response to open the door, to respond on the two-way street. John 3 16, for God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. It's to all people. First, 2 Peter 1:10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if if you are patient, these qualities will never fail you. There's an implication there that I've, I've sort of touched on in this, that you can be called, you can be elected, and you can walk. So Peter tells them, therefore, make with all diligence your call and your election sure. And you do that by doing what you're doing right now. You're hearing the word taught and you're incorporating it into your lives by the Spirit and you're walking in faith. That's how it works. Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now that's an Old Testament passage but it shows the two-way street between God. I'm here but you've got to do these things. Humble yourself. You've got to do these things. Now we don't have to do them. We will do them as you let God work through you. That's, that's, the, that's the caveat. Revelation 1, 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. It's all on them. I've given you, I've called, you've been taught, you've been elected, all of that's there. Now blessed are those who hears the word of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, the time is near. That's tachos in the Greek. We get tachometer from that. You know, when he says the time is near, you know what he's talking about? It's there. You can't apply that to ourselves today. Anyone who reads Revelation is lying to themselves. If they, don't, if they look at the Greek, and when he says seven times, it's coming quickly, it's near, and they look at the Greek and the meaning of that, it was upon those seven churches. Everything within those books. 1 Timothy 2.14, he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will he not put to shame. Got to believe. Choose to believe. Choose to have faith. Jesus stands, you know, of this one, over Jerusalem, Matthew 23, 37. What does He say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've called you as a, as a hen calls her chicks. But you were not willing. You were not willing. Again, the choice right there. I don't know how uh, uh, Calvinists understand these. It blows my mind. 1 Timothy 4.10, For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Who's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Can't get around that passage. You want to discount those, that last one on that board? Those later, you want to get rid of that? He's the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Categories uh, two and three. Amazing. 1 John 12, uh, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So you talk about election, all. Acts 17, 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands everybody everywhere to repent. Back in your hands. I've done the work. It's in your hands. Romans 10, 14, 17. Almost done, guys. How then will they call on him who has not believed? And how will they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without some preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed and has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And he ties it directly to the speaking and teaching of the word. They want to come up with this God elects people just like this. There's no free will. We have a reciprocity going on here. The hearing of the word, the choosing to believe, the desire and to be willing to follow God with him doing all he can. Yes, he elects for certain purposes, but everyone's getting the message. Isaiah 55, 8, 9 I'm going to end with this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Understand that clearly. We can't fathom what that God of ours has been doing. They're not our thoughts, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I hope that, little sojourn through scripture was beneficial in some way. You can go and take all the passages you want. I had another six pages um, of elect passages and you can categorize most of them reasonably in one of those four areas. And even that last one has a few passages that speak directly to that. And it's just a fascinating study if you want to know uh, that subject better. All right, questions, comments, please. Please you have been elected to give them.
1: Okay. All right.
0: This is David. Hello, David. Thank you, mustache man. Uh,
1: I find it interesting that the nation of Israel was chosen, but Gentiles in in those days were included in that not the not the entire nation of Israel because those in the nation rejected were not the bride only those in the nation and people outside the nation
0: yeah oh so the nation was elected but not all of them were believers is what you're saying not all of them were
1: not all of them were less at least righteous right okay okay not all of those chose him right right him right and people outside of that religion chose him so the bride ended up being not the chosen and yet they were the chosen yeah. because they were chosen as the bride yeah and oh. the it and, and so it was the bride that was chosen and not the individuals in the okay, bride okay. so the
0: the believers are the bride okay 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 and so you're saying collectively we have the election but it doesn't mean that they are the chosen. Uh,
1: that, that It doesn't mean that it's Mike and Dave and Sean. And, but, ah. Right. It, it's those whose heart uh, sl- are elected, they even elected, okay. to follow. Okay. Okay, right. so there's that aspect. Okay. The Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nero, Herod, they're also elected mm. in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's not that. Therefore, like, let's take you. It, I don't think that God is pushing you. I think that God is letting you see yeah. things, and it draws you yeah. by your choice. So you're elected, but you're the one who's following the, you know, I see. following the path.
0: I see. So that helps us answer the two way street and how that works. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: So the group, it doesn't, it didn't have to be you. Right. Somebody. You okay.
0: Th- right? Got it. I uh, got it. Okay. That's a, that's a really good insight. I love that. Yeah. Dave's a great thinker. Prophet Dave.
2: <laughs> Elaine, my sister. All right. Why don't you just say he's available to all?
0: I think he is, yeah. But I don't think he's available to all, but in the in the are you talking about relative to election?
2: I'm talking about if you want him, he's there. Somebody's going to pay for your sin. Either you'll pay for it or he will. Right? You've sinned. God requires death for sin. Therefore, somebody's going to die. But,
0: but who Wait. died for sin? Jesus. So if Jesus died for sin, how is he taking, extracting payment for sin of other people later?
2: He died for your sin, but you can say, I don't give a rip. I'll die for my own. So our, so, so,
0: then, uh, Elaine, you're suggesting that Jesus' death is, de- is dependent upon our receiving it or not.
2: Well, aren't you saying that? Didn't you say believe if you don't,
0: you got to believe? Yeah, to be his child, to be adopted, to be part of the bride, to be part of the church and the, his body. Yes, but I don't think you have to believe to have your sin Paid for. I think it's paid for in full. So you do nothing. You can do. You do nothing. You cannot believe the sin's been paid for. But, but, um, that does not make you a child. That does not make you uh, any. You've, you're you're a you're a net some gain. You've you've got had you've been you've had your sin removed, but you've done nothing. You're a branch that produces no fruit. You're a, you're a hollow thing that gets cut off and burned because you're not evil, but you've done nothing. Good, because you can't. And so I think that based on rewards, you will lack in rewards from God, being a rejecter of Christ.
2: Well, where will you spend eternity then?
0: Outside the city gates, outside his, in, outside his kingdom, where the liars and the, and the adulterers and the whoremongers live. That's how Revelation describes it.
2: This is a weird way to put things.
0: Think, I, <laughs> I know, think about it. Ooh, I love that. I like you challenge and say weird. Keep thinking on this.
1: This is Danny, but I love the response that you have for that. You know, the fact that he's paid for the sins of the world and then it makes it so much easier for, for us to accept him. Yeah. And share you know, him. We don't, we don't look at all the obligations and all the things that we have to do to qualify ourselves. It's just accept what he is, the work he's done for us. Yes. It's just beautiful. It is. Um I have a question that's kind of a little off-topic, but yeah. when you were talking about those un- at the altar that were crying for vengeance, yeah, it makes me wonder, and I don't know if you have an answer for this, Do will we recall uh, our lives here on earth and what happened? Will we have memory of any of that? I, I kind of think we don't, but some of those passages makes me wonder.
0: Makes, yeah, it makes you wonder. It seems like they did. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, Maybe if it's un uh, maybe, well, in that time, remember, they hadn't been received payment for, for beating the bride up. They hadn't received the destruction. And so maybe at that time they could see that. And so they were crying for destruction to fall for those. I'm sorry, it was the Jews who were just persecuting them terribly. When, when? And God says, well, when your brothers join you in death, that's when I'll do it. So maybe that ended that age, and maybe the age today isn't.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay.
0: You guys are awesome. Good to see you all. Oh, wait, another question. Front row. We have a rule. You have to say your first name.
2: Hi, I'm Julie. Hi. Okay, so you talked about many are called, but few are chosen. Yeah. And you tell the parable. Yeah. I didn't understand if you were saying that was good, that the king was asking him to conform and he didn't. Is that good or bad? I don't no, understand.
0: In the parable, the king was, was, um, he was angry. He represent, the king represents God. okay. And God invites all the Jews first to come to his son's wedding. Come in and be part of that wedding. They reject him. So then he says, okay, go out further and bring the Gentiles in non-Jews. So many people come. Well, among that group, Jesus says, and then there was one and he didn't wear the wedding garment. So when God comes to the reception, he sees that one. He was invited into the wedding. He was, but he didn't dress right. He didn't change his clothes. And it's a picture of when you receive Christ, you've got to, you've got to change and put on Christ and you have to be, and he was angry. And so he takes that guy. And even though he had uh, elected him and chosen him to come in meant he, even though he called him to come in he wasn't elected because he didn't dress appro- he didn't change his life and he was cast out of the wedding and he was burned with the rest so it was a picture for end times of that day don't come and profess to be a Christian as, as, uh, and, and just do what you want you're going to be taken out and you're going to be burned and that was the, the way it worked did that make sense? Yeah. it's hard all this. Yeah, definitely. Well, he accepted you for who you were when he invited you to come in. That's, so he goes out into the highways and the king didn't say they got to dress right. They got to look right. They got to eat right. You let them in as they are. But once you receive Christ and you come in, in that day, that bride, she had to be pure. And so being pure, she, it was like, you are not, you're a liar. And this happens all through the New Testament. In our day, I don't see it with the same stricture. I don't see the same thing. But in that day, they had to be pure. And that was a story to show. Don't come join us if you're not pure, if you're not willing to get rid of your former life and live like that. And that's pretty brutal. Elaine.
2: No, 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 no. (laughs) I think that saying... The guy wasn't recognized by all the other guests. That's not said. Until the until the king came in. The king knew right away he wasn't dressed properly. Okay. I think that's saying Christians, you can't you can't you're not gonna recognize or you can't tell apart the believer from the non believer. Like wheat and tears. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's a good that's a good interpretation. I can go with that. Talk to Elaine. We're gonna have Elaine sit up here. We're gonna have two answers. You can choose which one you like. I love that, Stephen. Hey,
1: so I think that it's <clears throat> we sit here and t- talk about this parable all day long. You know, but well, he he wasn't dressed right. This and that. I think it's important to note that was when Jesus was alive.
0: Now it's finished, right? Yeah, he that's died how I see it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that as a very different application. But doesn't mean I'm right. All right, you guys, let's uh, pray and get out of here. Uh, okay, Lord, we uh, we thank you for your word. We pray for your spirit. Help us to understand all the thoughts that come into this, and all the uh, comments, and the, and the ones I make that are uh, misleading. We got to forget those, and if anyone else makes them, we got to forget those too. We got to love each other. We're trying to investigate and understand and move forward. And we've got to love others. And if we walk out of here with any message uh, that challenges that, we've got to forget it. And we just pray that we can be people who walk in faith and walk in love as your children, as your sons, as your daughters. And that's why we study your word so that we can grow in faith and grow in this love for all people, all the time, always in your name and share the good news of Christ Jesus and his wonderful victory. Um, and help people come to have a relationship and to walk in the freedom and the liberty and the emancipation that comes with a relationship with you. We pray for Hannah, Hannah Ann. Um, Hannah is a teenager and she's battling uh, suicidal thoughts and, and things that teenagers face and everyone faces sometimes. And we just pray for Hannah and healing and mind and spirit. We pray for the uh, Rappage family. And we pray that you'll bless them and give them wholeness and health and help them as they work their way through these troubling times. We pray for all people who are struggling. The suicide rates are on the up and up, and we are uh, just—we seem to be, just be losing freedoms and and liberty and, and and community and fellowship. And there's a dark dearth over the human soul at this time, and it seems to be growing rapidly. And uh, we just pray that. As salt and light, we can continue to abide in the vine that is you and that we can um, move forward. and and, uh, We pray for our brother Ethan and his ministry at his high school and pray that you'll bless him and help him with his mind and his strength and his encouragement and his light and love. And that he'll be able to continue to uh, shine and share with uh, the people he can meet and that he grows in his ability to dialogue with other believers. Everybody else who's not on this list, Lord, we know they should be, but they're not. We just pray for them and lift them up and uh, pray for protection and guidance and seeing your hand in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.